We'll be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you would open with me to 1 John chapter 4 today. Moving on to a new chapter and a new command from John. A warning to us, but one which we have seen in almost every book, every epistle that we've been through so far together. So it's not new. It's the same old, same old. Because it is such a critical matter for us to think about. So we'll be looking at the first three verses primarily today. But we'll read the chapter since we're just now turning to the new chapter. So 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Are they from, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But this love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he 
has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wisdom and grace you've given to the Apostle John to write these letters for us. And as we move now into a new topic and a new chapter, pray, Lord, that you would encourage and lift up our hearts. Give us wisdom that we might be obedient to your command and give us joy that we might see the grace and wisdom in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the point of this passage, the first really six verses, although we will only get to half of it today, the point is we should not automatically believe every spirit. And that's a command. Do not believe every spirit. John's given us a number of important commands in his book, in, the, in this epistle. He's given us some positive commands to love one another. Right? First John 3, 23 and 24, this is a commandment that we, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. And whoever keeps the commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. And so we've seen in that summary there, there are really three commandments given. We believe, we have faith, we love one another, and we do what he's told us to do. We live a life in keeping with what he has called us to. Saving faith, brotherly love, and obedience to his revealed will. These work together to show us that we are children of God. By this we have come to know him, 1 John 2, 3-6, if we keep his commandment. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. He has given us that instruction that we should be obedient to the commandments that God has given us. And as we've talked about in the past, God has given them to us in all of the scriptures, you know, rightly understood, rightly compared, rightly dealt with. And that is what it means to be a believer, which we are called to do, and to love God, to be keeping his commandment. Uh, John went on in 1 John 2, 28 and 29 to say, Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so the positive command here is saving faith, brotherly love, obedience to his revealed will. These are really the three big things that he's been going over, what they look like. But he also gave us a negative command, something we should not do. And yeah, there are a bunch of them mixed in with the positive ones. You know, obey God, don't disobey God. You know, abide in him, don't abandon, don't be apart from him. Uh, walk in the light, not in the dark. But the explicit negative command was do not love the world. 
for the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. So all of these tests that he's been going through help us personally to see our relationship with God, to give us our assurance that we know that we are walking with him. We know that we sin, but we know that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we to look at these tests, we know about ourselves, but these tests are also applicable, as we see in this, cha- this first section of this chapter, to understanding where others are, particularly the spirits are. Christianity does not call people to be naive. You don't turn off your brain to become a Christian. That's the old mocking joke. The Christian has to get a lobotomy to be able to believe that. Christians don't have to, you know, should never question. They just follow along. Whatever the priest says you do, that's Catholic, Roman Catholicism. And they think that kind of comes over into Christianity somehow. But Christianity does not call for naive, blind faith in everyone who claims to come from God. It doesn't call for that blind faith in everyone who speaks the name of Jesus. Everyone who says, oh, God told me. We don't believe them. It's not calling us for that naivety. That naivety leads to big trouble. If we're too trusting in every spirit that comes along and says, God has said. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4. He says, when he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to prevent you to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a severe, sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. His accusation to the Corinthians was essentially, you're being naive and too open. You're listening to everybody and everything, and you're not being discerning. What happens when you do that? Well, his letter to the Galatians is a little firmer. In Galatians 1, 6 through 9, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now say again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Well, who called you to the faith? We should answer that question first. They're deserting him who called you. Who called you? Well, Peter tells us in First Peter 1, 15, and 16, is he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, be holy, for I am holy. It's quoting the Old Testament, Yahweh speaking, God. God is the one who has called us. 
And they are abandoning him. They are deserting him and turning to a different gospel. Why? Because people are coming along and telling them, oh, this is what God really says. And they're like, oh, great, great, great. Let's follow that. And they're being deceived. People are ultimately turned away by false teachers and false prophets and spirits whom they listen to naively. Which is why John is being so firm here. The apostle of love is saying, do not believe every spirit. Of course, you don't, even if you don't turn away from Christ by following them, helping them in any way, aiding them, giving them any legitimacy is a sin. In John's warning of this, in his second epistle, 2 John, verses 6 through 11, there's only one chapter. It says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment you had heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes ahead without abiding in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now notice it says in the teaching of Christ. The instructions that God has given through his apostles, through the word of God. If you don't abide in that, then you don't have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now this is a difficult matter for many people. When you help, when you join with, when you are friendly with people who are obviously false prophets, false teachers, who are teaching heresy, you're giving them a little bit of legitimacy. Other Christians may see that and think, oh, maybe they're not so bad. Maybe they're okay. And they may be led astray through your testimony. And so John is saying, even don't even speak to them. Don't welcome them. Don't give them a greeting. You know, call them to repentance would be the right answer. Call them on what they're doing wrong and say, I'm sorry, but I I can't treat you as a brother because you're doing this or you're teaching this or your church is teaching this. I have had many people tell me, oh, you know, yeah, the denomination is bad, but that church is good, so we're involved. By joining that church, you're giving a testimony that says you're accepting them, which is accepting the authority over them, which is the denomination, which is involved in sin, In heresy, then you're joining them in their wicked work, according to John. And we should take John's instruction very, very seriously and very diligently. So John is telling us, do not be naive. False prophets and false teachers are here. And in this passage and everywhere in Scripture, they're considered to be servants of the devil, the Antichrist. They're called, told they will face God's wrath. Remember when we looked at Jude a few months back, 
Jude 11 through 13, he says, Woe to them, speaking of these false teachers and false prophets, the one who follow their passions and their visions and their dreams. He says, that they have walked in the way of Cain, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feast, and they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars with whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for others. These false teachers, according to Jude, the most they can do for you is shipwreck your faith. They can't water you. They're waterless clouds. They can't feed you. They feed only themselves. They're terrible and they're shameful. And all they can give you is false hope and false comfort. But a lot of times that's what people want. In the Old Testament, Israel was rebuked for this by Jeremiah, well, by the Lord through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 6, 13 through 15, he says, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Peace, peace with God. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall, and at that time I will punish them, and they will be overthrown, says the Lord. A lot of times people look to these false teachers, these false prophets, for comfort. How do I feel better? How do I feel less afraid? Well, lie to me, tell me sweet little lies, and I'll feel better. And we'll look at it next week, but they they hear what the world has to say, and they like that. And so they speak in those terms, what they want to hear, tickling their itching, itching ears. But we're repeatedly warned to watch out for them. John has already done it in 1 John 2.18. He said, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Jesus also warned to beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15 and 16. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? We'll look at that again in a minute, but fruits being the moral test that John has already given us. And again in Mark 13, 22 and 23, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you things before, all things beforehand. So they're, they're seeking to lead even us astray, and especially God's people astray, the elect. They want them to stumble. That's their purpose. That's their goal. Their hatred for God is such that they want to stop God's people as well. That was one of Jesus' accusations against the leaders of his day. You shut up the kingdom of heaven and prevent those who want to go into it. 
And that's what the wicked have done. They're seeking to lead us astray. Remember when he was speaking about the Antichrist back in chapter 2, he went on to say in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. I said then we really need to take that warning seriously. They want to deceive us. They want to stumble us. They want us in trouble with God. They want anything but people faithfully following God. Some of them know it and are deliberate. Some of them don't know. You know the, rather than blind faith, naive faith, Christianity really promises us the wisdom, the knowledge, and the discernment of God, uh, of his word, and through his spirit that we might know what we believe and we might believe truth. And that's the hard part. We really need to believe the truth, not just what men say. We start, though, not with perfect knowledge. And the day we are saved, we don't become fully knowledgeable about everything about God. Sometimes when we're new believers, we, you know, we learn a little bit and we think we know a lot. And we find out as we go along, we really don't know as much as we thought. We don't start with perfect knowledge, but we should grow. We should be growing to adulthood. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, there's criticism of God's people there. He says in verses 11 to 14, I have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to become teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Well, we all started as children, and that's fair and that's fine. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You know, we should be constantly training our powers of discernment through understanding and knowing the scriptures and applying them to ourself and our life, to applying them to what we hear and what people do and understanding right and wrong, good and evil. By training through constant practice, we mature ourselves, our faith, and our understanding. Maturity was what Paul often prayed for in his people. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he says, From the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, that was his prayer for them, and that is, should be our prayer for ourselves and for each other, that we be increasing in the knowledge of God, that we be growing in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we can discern what is right and wrong. And again, in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, it says that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and, a, and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having eyes of your, the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and the riches and the glorious inheritance of the saints 
And so we, we really need to know that. We need our eyes enlightened, our knowledge increased, so that we may know what is right and wrong. And to that end, John is calling us in our passage today to test every spirit. And the purpose of the test is to see, are they of God or are they of the devil? There are only two options. There are no other options. There's not, oh, it's okay. No, they're either a spirit from God or a spirit from the devil. God's command through John is not to believe them unless they have passed the test. Now, this is a struggle for many people, especially here in America. We have a principle, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. But there's no benefit of the doubt here in John's passage. He does not say, believe every teacher and prophet, every spirit, until they prove themselves to be from Satan. Until they prove themselves to be of the Antichrist. He doesn't say that. He says quite the opposite. Test them before you believe them. Test the spirit first, like the Bereans did. Remember they were considered more noble than the Thessalonians in Acts 17:11 and following. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. So here's Paul coming in and explaining from the Old Testament the Christ, the Messiah, that he has come, and he's explaining it to the Jews. And they are taking their scriptures, and they are unrolling their scrolls, and they are checking everything he said to verify that he really is telling the truth and that these things really are so. And he is not angry. He does not say, how dare you doubt me? I am the apostle. I tell, you listen, you obey. No, he is saying they were more noble because they checked what he said. You know, an, an honest and good pastor, teacher, is excited when people go home and double check what they've said. They hear something they've never heard before. They hear something they've heard differently. They go to the scriptures and verify, or they come back with questions. It's exciting. It's noble. That's what testing the spirit begins with. And we're not talking about just prophets here. What is a prophet? In the Old Testament, a prophet was a messenger of the covenant. God made a covenant with man. God would tell a prophet, go and tell this person they have sinned, or go and tell the country they have sinned in this way, and he would take the message to them. Go and call them to repentance. Uh, Go and give them this promise of hope. I'm going to punish them for their sin, but in the future this good thing will happen. They were essentially messengers of the covenant. In the New Testament, they're very much the same. The message, though, is the new revelation in Christ, all of the things that were hidden and veiled, now being made known and made clear and explained what we should do and how we should live under Christ. And so the prophet was the messenger of the covenant, but God's revelation in that case would go from him to the prophet to man. But in the writing of scripture, it went from him through the Holy Spirit to the man writing the scripture. 
and then from the scripture to us. And in that sense, all pastors and teachers serve a similar office to a prophet. We're not prophets in the sense God doesn't speak to us directly, but we're prophets in the sense we're taking what God has given and we're revealing it to the people. And that's why he talks about the spirit here. It's more than just somebody coming and said, God has given me a vision and this is what God says to you. Uh, Paul, uh, John's meaning here is much wider than that when he says test all the spirits. It is all of them. What does he mean by spirit? Well, yes, the prophetic spirit, God told me, God revealed to me, God appeared to me in a vision, a dream, an angel spoke to me. All of these appear in scripture and people still claim them. I remember once somebody complaining that one of the men on their session, when he didn't get his way, would say, well, God has revealed to me that we need to do this my way. He said it was very frustrating because he always won when he did that. And I looked at him and said, and you let him get away with that? There are tests in the Old Testament. Before somebody is accepted as a prophet, they must either perform a miracle or they must prophesy the future and it happens exactly as it did. You remember Saul was told, you know, you will go down there and these men will meet you and tell you the donkeys have been found. You'll go here and you'll find prophets and they'll say this and that and, you know, step by step. And it happened exactly as it was said. And that proved that Saul was hearing a prophecy from God. Uh, people who claim to have these visions and spirits, we need to test what they say against scripture. Those are the two Old Testament tests. Here in the New Testament, we're given more. But we also have the scriptures. They are breathed out by God. They are the product of the spirit of God. When we are testing the spirit, the spirit has given us scripture. And so when people are interpreting what the spirit has said in scripture, their interpretation then needs to be tested the same way as any other prophecy would need to be tested. And also the one that gets us into the most trouble with the modern um, charismatic movement our heart. John 14, 27, 26, Jesus says, you know, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I have said to you. And they say, see, we don't need the church. We don't need the Bible. We have the spirit in ourselves. Well, you need to test that spirit. Many people seem to want to make that internal spirit authoritative over the scripture. They trust their feelings as if they were revelations from God. And that's really not the case. You know, the, the quietest movement, the Quakers, which my family is from Quaker background, uh, they made this very popular. They would sit quietly until the spirit moved them and then they would pronounce what the spirit had told them. Uh, very strange. Judging our religious experience is very important, though. We need to keep the scripture in mind when we're doing that. How do we judge the spirit that makes us think or that makes us feel or that makes us want or believe? How do we judge that? Is it from God? Is it from Satan? Is it from our own heart? The way to do that is to keep in view the system of truth 
contained in the Holy Scriptures. Otherwise, as is too often the case, our experiences and our emotions degenerate into enthusiasm and little more. Uh, Many people take for granted that all of their religious feelings, all of their passions are from God and are good. And they take no care to discriminate between what is genuinely from God stirring their heart and what is from the sin and corruption still in them stirring their heart. (coughs) They don't separate between the gold and the dross. Their concern is about their emotions and their passions and their desires. And the more intense it is, the more they think it is from God. And that's not helpful. And that's not biblical. It's not during service time, so my phone is not sleeping. Sorry. Uh, so we need to be aware of that, need to be careful. Even the spirit that we feel stirring within us is one of the spirits we need to test. Do not believe every spirit. Do not believe the spirit in your own heart. But carefully judge it. Carefully evaluate it. There are, there are many spirits, and I've kind of hinted at this, and I, I tend to group them into three categories. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, as he's sometimes called, the the author of the Holy Scriptures. We've talked about how all Scripture is God-breathed. And in 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21 through 21, we're talking about how no prophecy of Scripture came about by the own interpretation, but or by the will of man, but they spoke as they were, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are the writing of God through the Holy Spirit. They are the spirit that we can believe, that we can trust. We know that is the spirit of God, not of man, not of the devil. You also have the spirit of the Antichrist, the devil, the demons, referenced here in verse 3 of our text. And then lastly, the spirit of man, which I mentioned earlier. Our will, our desires, our passions, the things that speak to us from our heart. Uh, We feel stirred in our heart with desire for something, with conviction that something is good or bad. With belief that we want something or don't want something. I, I remember hearing Christians say, well, you know, I'm... I'm waiting on God's spirit to let me know whether that person is right for me to marry or not marry. And they're trusting in their emotion as if it were the spirit of God. And usually, though, that is the spirit of man, our own spirit. All of these need to be tested. They're not trustworthy. Where is man's spirit? Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. Our heart is not trustworthy, even as a believer. The things we desire are often the things of the flesh.
And we need to be careful. We need to judge the spirit moving within us. Is it God's spirit convicting us of sin and leading us to righteousness? Or is it man's spirit, the spirit of the flesh, leading us to greater sin? So John tells us how to judge the spirits. Briefly, how to test the spirits. He says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You might say, oh, that's easy. If they say that, we're good. I can say that so I can trust myself. Of course, who doesn't say that? Uh, Couldn't all of the cults today say that? Almost all of them. Couldn't Islam say that? Jesus Christ came in the flesh from God. He was just a prophet, a minor prophet, inferior to their prophet. Doesn't that meet the requirement? Is that really what it requires? The New Testament is full of people claiming to be with God and speak for God. And they're constantly being shut down by the apostles, by Jesus, uh, by the scriptures as not being so. Every epistle we've been through, there's been at least one section where they're refuting some error being taught by people in the church. But all of those people would probably be able to say, no problem, I can say those words. I can believe those words in my own way. Is that what it means? Yeah, this, this idea, though, of testing brought about a doctrine in the Reformation that had been lost for a long time. Remember under Roman Catholicism, who was allowed to decide what was right and wrong? Who decided what the interpretation of the Bible was? The church. Only the church. Who is being told to test the spirits here? And the priest should test the spirit and let you know. No. The individual, the person, the believer, every believer, no matter how humble they may be, has the right and the obligation to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Before they follow them, before they believe them, they need to be like the Bereans. That's an obligation to us to test the spirits. We are responsible when we follow a lying spirit, a deceiving spirit. And so we see that while it seems simple on the surface, the test has really got to be harder than that. Otherwise, it would not be a test. Anybody can say those words. Any cult could agree with it. The Mormons could agree with it. John certainly is not including all of them. The blind can talk about light. The unspiritual can talk about spiritual matters. Those who are alienated from God can talk about communion with God. Those who have never known love in their life can talk about love. They can do it without being deceitful. They do it from a heart that thinks they're speaking the truth, but they don't know the truth. Yes, there are many liars and deceivers too, but even honest people, even ourselves, when we're honest with ourselves, we may think we're in the right. 
but that doesn't make it right. We have to investigate whether these things are right with God's spirit. And the only way to make that test is by comparing it to scripture. It's the only thing we have that we can use. I noticed, and I think you probably remember too, that even the, whole, even the evil spirits could agree with what was said in John's test. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark 3.11, whenever an unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And the spirit, the demon living among the tombs, the man living among the tombs was demon-possessed in Mark 5.7, cried out with a loud voice, <coughs> What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God not to tor- torment me. The demons knew. So a superficial understanding of of that test would allow even the demons to be believers. We need to take this more seriously. The test here is really a doctrinal test. Confess that Jesus is the Christ. What is the Christ? The anointed one of God, the one sent to take away the sins of the world, the one promised that he has come in the flesh, often denied that he had, he had a real body. There were those who said, no, a real body would be sinful, and therefore Jesus only appeared to have a body, but it wasn't a real body. It was you know, some mysterious magic thing. So that he has come in the flesh, that he did have a real human body. Why is that important? Well, how can he be a substitute for sinful man if he wasn't a man. If he did not take on our nature, he could not be a substitute dying for our sin. His... Yeah, this is what happens when I hold service outside of normal hours. Too many pop-ups. So it's it's a critical matter that he, he was come in the flesh, that he had a real body, that he was really a human being that he took our nature, that he fulfilled the obligation that was on us. He was born under law, Scripture says. Why? So that he could fulfill the law for us. (laughs) My apologies, people. We're having technological glitches today. And then, of course, that he is from God. And not just that he is from God, but he is God the Son, come down from heaven, from his throne. Why is that important? Well, if he wasn't God, his death would not be enough to redeem us. And it's only because he is the Son that his death has infinite value that he can redeem man. If he were only a man and died for us, he could not redeem even one person. Uh, the price for our sins, the 
that we should never die, that we should never uh, be cast into hell is infinite. It can never be paid. It is never enough. Man cannot pay it. And so it's important, the truth that he is the son of God, the eternal son of God, that he is very God of very God and from God. These three key pieces are part of our confession when we profess faith in Christ. If we don't believe that he is sent by God to take away our sins, we don't believe that he is our substitute, that he lived the life that we did not. We don't believe that as God, he died for us, meriting salvation for us and paying for our sins. If we don't agree, believe all of these things that are taught in scripture, then we do not believe in him. And if we believe he was just a man and a good example, we're not saved. We don't know God. And so to reject any of those doctrines that John mentions would be tantamount to rejecting God. And in fact, to reject the teachings of God in Scripture is to reject God. Now, it doesn't stop here because in the context, he has given the tests throughout the whole book so far, and those tests were more the practical tests, more applicable to us personally for our assurance, but also applicable to the prophet, the pastor, the teacher. Tests of Christ's likeness. If we know God, we'll love him, keep his commandments, walk as Jesus walked. That was repeated tests that we see in various ways throughout the first three chapters. And so if they are not living a godly life, if they are living a life of sin, then is that person's spirit that they're speaking with trustworthy? Doctrinally, if they aren't agreeing with Scripture and practically, if, they're, if the spirit, if the, if the thing that has happened, whether it be somebody speaking to you or your own heart, if it isn't in agreement with Scripture, then it isn't God's spirit obviously, because God is not crazy. He does not contradict himself. And he is not a liar. He does not deceive us by saying one thing in one place and another in another. He doesn't write in the word one thing and tell us in our heart something different is okay. That never happens. So the first is the doctrinal. And the second, if we're listening to a teacher or a prophet or a pastor, are they walking as Christ walked? in truth do they have biblical brotherly love do they see the image of Christ in a Christian and do they love them for that and do they care for them not just in word of mouth but in truth now you see many of the popular televangelists and faith healers they're millionaires because they love to exploit their followers They don't love their followers. They love money. And that's the third one, the test of worldliness. The love of the Father is not in us if we love the world. Things of the world are not from God. And if we're loving, if the the, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher is loving the things of the world, then the spirit by which they're speaking is probably not the Holy Spirit. 
but it is either their own spirit or the spirit of the devil, the Antichrist. So if they don't agree with these tests, if they're not passing these tests, he says, test every spirit. And if you test every spirit and they are not living, they're not effectively confessing Christ as God, then they're the Antichrist. And we shouldn't be following them. Uh, Isaiah 8.20 says, To the teaching and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this world, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. They are not, a, they are not believers. They are the enemy. They are the Antichrist. They are the false prophet, the false teacher. And it's a thing for us to take seriously especially given what he says in the next in second john that we read that you know we have guilt if we follow them we have guilt if we endorse them in any way that leads other people astray and so we are to test every spirit not just the televangelist not just the author we're reading not just the pastor, the teacher, but the spirit even within ourselves. That we don't get led astray by, I really feel in my heart this is what I should do. We need to compare that with scripture and make sure that it really is what God would have us to do. Uh, in all of these things, though, we should be testing the spirits, not believing them until we're confident. Now, when it comes to teachers and ministers, you have many denominations where people just pretty much stand up and say, okay, I want to be the pastor or I want to be a teacher, and they are. And then you have like Presbyterian churches where they have to be educated, they're examined by the other pastors to make sure they're already tested, essentially. Uh, now, doesn't mean you stop testing, <laughs> but they're pre-tested. And you don't have to worry as much. But it is important, particularly with books, uh, there have been a few times I've read books and thought they were really good, and then I found out the person had said that he would not worship a God who put people in hell or something, some, you know, some other modern-day denial of Scripture. So it's important for us to test the spirits, is what John is saying to us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that you have given us your spirit, and as believers, your spirit is within us. But we also know that the flesh is still in us. And we must test the things that we desire, that we want, that we feel, to make sure they really are from you. Test them according to your word, because your word is truth. And for teachers and prophets and pastors, also we need to test what they say and what they teach according to the truth of your word and test their life according to the test John has given us. Are they living a life that shows that they know you, that they are from you, that your spirit is in them? Pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and wisdom to walk rightly, that we might not be stumbled, that we might not be led astray, that we might not be deceived, that we might not be robbed of our reward, but that we might be faithful and kind and just. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.